If you don't know our guest by now, you haven't really been listening. I quote him all the time, incessantly, because he is the one, the only, James Beard award-winning, for the first ever cocktail book, no less, cocktail historian extraordinaire, the Dean of Cocktails. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. If you want to know the history of the cocktail you're sipping right now, David Wandrich is the one to ask. Author of Imbibe, Punch, Esquire Drinks, co-host of Drinks Podcast, Life Behind Bars, and so much more. He is one of my heroes and here with me today. But before we begin, I wanted to tell you about an event that is coming up to benefit the Drinks Trust, which has provided care and support to the drinks industry since 1886. On Tuesday, the 1st of December from 6 to 7.30, on Zoom, they are having a holiday cocktail party run by David Wood of Liana Cocktail Company. You can find out more on alushlifemanual.com. Now on to David. There is a year that really in, it is, is like the year of cocktail mythology, okay? And I believe that okay. year is 1999. It isn't even an urban myth because these things really happened. No, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, I will. Num- so far, All I right. agree with you. Because <laughs> I know you're a historian. <laughs> Number one, the first thing that happened in 1999 is Milk and Honey was, was born. Yep. That's that's the rumor on the street. Number two was that was when you first started writing about alcohol, at least. Now, is that true? That is true. Yes. That's when a very least, good year. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a phone call at the very end of the year, the same month that Milk and Honey opened, it turned out, asking me to do a cocktail project for Esquire Magazine's website. At the time, I was writing about music for the Village Voice and for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and or not the magazine, the Arts and Leisure section. And uh, my friend knew that, and he knew I liked cocktails, and I had a few cocktail books. And he asked if I could uh, take this old Esquire drinks book and adapt it for the web because somebody had reprinted it and Esquire wasn't seeing any revenue from that reprint. And they were a little ticked and they said, well, let's just put it up online. Let's let everybody have it. And I, being an academic at the time, immediately started editing and cutting and pasting and categorizing and all that kind of thing. And Esquire liked that and gave me the job. So I started small, but Esquire liked it. And it turned into a drink of the week on their website, which uh, was way more fun than my academic job. And in the fullness of time, that led to a book. And then I quit my academic job, and I've been doing this ever since. So, Well, listen, I'm going to cheers to that. because uh-huh. You, right, you find me drink. without a drink. <laughs> well, it is earlier there than it is It's here. much earlier, and different. I have a full day of work ahead of me. So, And this is kind of a twist on the one that you gave me, which is the improved Holland gin cocktail, yep. because... I didn't have orange curacao, so I put Grand Marnier in. So cheers to that. Same thing. That's fine. I'll raise a glass of water. Cheers. Oh, cheers. (laughs) Cheers to that. The year that everything changed. We're going to go back because 
The conversation is about how you got to where you are now. Okay. And so let's start at the beginning. I believe that we are both Pennsylvanians. I'm from the Philadelphia side and you're from the other I was, side. I was born in Pittsburgh, but I only lived there till I was eight. So I'm sort of a fake Pittsburgher. And where'd but you go after that? Evanston, Illinois for four years, and then Brooklyn for a few months, and then Long Island. Uh, all right. Long so yeah, suburbs. like a New Yorker. Yeah, basically a New Yorker. We all know that you, you, you know, you were, you were, well, a lot of us know who are listening that you were a professor, but you were a musician before that. And were you, was that something that you always loved growing up? Was music? Not, re- not really. I, I got into music. I always listened to the radio in the 70s when I was, when I was a kid in my formative adolescent years, it was always uh, uh, AM pop, which was a very mixed thing at the time. It, there was as much like Al Green as there was Pink Floyd. So it was it was very a very cool mix and that kind of formed my taste but I had no particular strong interest and then the punk revolution happened and uh, I, punk rock was very much for me. That was, was there one band that you just loved over all of them? The Ramones and the Sex Pistols were by two, and I learned how to play bass when I was uh, really pretty late. I, I was eighteen, I think, and uh, so it was seventy nine. And started, you know, jumping up and down on stage and playing bass very badly, which I eventually played bass a little bit better. And I kept it up for about 10 years and then I finally quit. But it, but for a while there, I was pretty serious about it. And were you going, were you going to university at the same time? I was until I dropped out. And I dropped out after about three years just to play in bands. I assume, uh, yeah, I assume you had a band. And oh, did yeah, you tour I had, and, and I, toured, well, I did all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Are are there any hidden like on Spotify? If we, which I did do by no, the way, I did put uh, David Wondrich <laughs> in Spotify, and it no. came to one song that you wrote for some kind of compilation with other cooks and chefs and things. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's a mint julep song that that. Oh God, I'm blanking on their name. A uh, wonderful band Michael Hurst and his crew did. But anyway, no, there's uh, only one of my the songs I played on made it on record at the time. I have a lot of demos that we did for record companies. But in the early 80s, record companies weren't signing anybody. They were blindsided by punk and new wave. They didn't understand it. They wanted to understand it. So they were very, very cautious. As a result, they didn't make any money. And then by the late 80s, they decided to sign everybody and let the market figure it out. And that worked better for them. But I was too early for that. So I just have a, a bunch of demos that eventually I'll get all digitized and so on. Well, I hope so. And as a result, obviously, of them not signing you, we have you as the greatest cocktail <laughs> historian or the dean of cocktails, should we say. So you, you went back to university. Um, I did. Did you did you know? Had you been an English major before you dropped out? Was that something that you knew? I was you an English major before I dropped out. Yep. Just by default, I didn't know what else to do. I I kind of wanted to be a writer, but I was an absolutely terrible writer. Uh, I was just pretentious and this extremely extremely bad writer at the time. Well, and I have pros to prove it that I'm never going to show anybody. But oh my god, it was bad. But uh, you know, I, I switched to music, and I was I was better at that. Not not to say I was great, but I was better at it. And I really enjoyed that. I, I loved playing in bands 
that part of it. I just didn't like the music business part. And when I didn't get signed by the time I was 25, I was uh, smart enough to realize that I probably was not going to. Well, you could have done anything in the world. Why did you decide to go back to university? Because I wanted a better job. I, I, okay. Well, actually, I originally thought that I would try to get a diplomatic job because I speak Italian and I'm pretty good with languages. I grew up speaking Italian. My father was Italian. So we're going to get to that because okay. I speak I speak Italian as well. On Twitter, you have referenced a lot of Italian and I've answered back with Italian. And I, thought, I, I okay. remember that. Yeah. yeah. So your dad was from Italy originally. Yeah. Yeah. He came to America in the 50s. Wandrich is a name from Trieste, and uh, he was half Sicilian and half Triestino, so it's a crazy mix. And oh, yeah. I, I, yes, of course. The last name doesn't end in a vowel. I didn't no, even no, think no. about that. Yeah, no, yeah. But, you know, it's still Italian. <laughs> My family are plenty Italian over there. They're so you decided, the, so were you, you were going to study English again? Cause... Well, I, I was going to finish my English degree, and then, and then I graduated and started a quick, I thought I would get a quick master's in political science. And, I love it, uh, quick, a quick master's. Yeah. Well, you know, it was like two years. It was not that uh -huh. long. And at that point, college was very easy for me because I'd been in the workforce for a long time. And uh, college uh -huh. is way easier than working, you know. So I, I started this political science program. And after about three months, I realized I just could not do it because the books are, are just illegible to me. You know, I, I hated the books and I couldn't spend the rest of my life reading political science books. So I walked over to the comparative literature department at NYU where I was and I talked to them and the professor I talked to at the end of our uh, talk said, well, we can't give you a lot of money. <laughs> I was like, Wait a minute. you're going to give me money? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, basically I was paid to read books for, for, for the next five years. <laughs> During that time... Were there, I mean, were you drawn to bars, you know, cocktail drinking? Did you have a favorite? Again, here's the 27 questions mm -hmm. in a row. You know, was oh. that something part of your life? Oh, then? yeah. I, I was always drawn to bars ever since I was a teenager. Bars were where I learned how to be American. You know, I was half American. I spent a lot of time in Italy as a kid. And that, you know, sort of set me aside from a lot of my peers at the time. And if you just hang out at the bar and, and, and watch people, you'll learn a lot about them, I think. And you yeah, said it's where you learn, sorry, it's where you learn to be American, but you have this Italian background. Were you ordering, I guess, I'm going to say pompous at the time, things like Negronis oh, and oh, no, 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 I was drinking shots of whiskey and, and quarter beers. You right. know, I mean, really, uh, gin and tonic was, was as fancy as I got. So, yeah, and, and I, I was always interested in that. I was always interested in convivial li literature, things like P.G. Woodhouse, you know, where Jeeves is always mixing up the cocktails and, and Philip Marlowe books set in dark, smoky bars. I, I always liked that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, New York had so many great bars, like just divey old man bars that were very cheap. I, w I was very poor, so I, I couldn't drink at the fancy bars, but I could definitely drink at O'Donnell's and the Glockamora and all these places. The Park Inn, notorious. I, 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 yeah, of course. I lived in New York for a long time. I remember the Park Inn. Oh um, boy, that, that was a dive. No, that was a dive. 
<laughs> I think I, I may have gone in once and said, maybe this is not for me. Yeah, no, I, I like that place. But uh, <laughs> that place was rough. <laughs> it was uh, definitely shit happened there that shouldn't have happened anywhere. But <laughs> oh, well. Uh so you so you were all you were going to the bars plus studying. Did you have an idea of you know after you came out of university what you were going to do with the degree? Well, not did you kind the, of fall not, into it? Not with the English degree. You know, I thought yeah. I'd do the the political science, like I said, and right. then, then comparative literature. The there's only one thing you're supposed to do with that degree is become a professor, and I was resigned to that. I, I wasn't thrilled about it. But I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get an academic job because that's what they tell you you do with this thing. And uh, I did. I was fortunate enough to find one in New York. Not a great one, but it was in New York. And I really didn't want to leave. You know, there were only a couple cities in America uh, I was interested in, in living in at the time. And uh, New York was, was far and away the first one. I was a New Yorker before I was an academic, and I preferred to stay that. I was teaching English, which I was... Not what I was interested in. I was interested in classical literature. I was interested in Arabic. I'd studied Arabic in grad school for, for years. I've forgotten all of it, unfortunately, but I have remembered all my Latin, so that's good. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I read that if you could have a drink with anyone, it would be Ovid. That's true. The I wanted wittiest... to know if that, if that was still yeah, true. Oh, yeah. The wittiest person who ever lived, I think. He, of course, said some things that we say today. They're out of my mind right now. But did he ever say anything about drinking? It wasn't his main topic, let's say. But, you know, there's some scenes of drunken debauchery in the Metamorphoses. Things don't end well, but uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of that stuff. And he wasn't, he wasn't the great Roman poet of uh, wine and song. Women, yes. But uh, he was still, I'm sure he would be happy to hoist a sociable glass. And, oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. And uh, especially if you caught him in exile on the Black Sea, where he was <laughs> I, sent. I, I, <laughs> he was, uh, but he was, he was a piece of work as a, as a poet. Oh, my God. I mean, quick, quick, quick. So I, I tend to like people like that. Now, now you have, so you're teaching English, and then we know the year of 1999, this fabulous year that happened. Were you surprised by getting so much recognition for what you were doing in this drinks milieu that you you created? Well, it took a couple years, you know. First, it was just, you know, a guy on Esquire's website. and But I got out and about in the city, and I met a bunch of people, and I, I got along with them. And it really was, you know, a recognition of, of lost members of the tribe. That was, in the larger sense, that's really what was happening in 1999 and 2000, 2001. 2002 is is a, a widely scattered group of people who had parallel and often very closely converging interests in not just like cocktails but in like sort of convivial culture cocktail the world of that went went with cocktails they they were all identifying each other and gathering you know and it was a it was a great time for that and that's that, so so suddenly I had all kinds of new friends, and it happened very quickly. You know, suddenly I'm hanging out with Dale DeGroff, and I'm like, wow, 
I get this guy, this guy gets me. <laughs> you know, we we can have a very pleasant time having a cocktail and talking about stuff. And and it went on from there. It, it, it turned out that, you know, it had been one of my interests. It wasn't my main interest, but it turned out that was the same with everybody. And that one interest brought together people who had a lot of other interests in common. I mean, Dale and I could talk about Roy Eldridge, the jazz trumpeter. I was writing the jazz criticism at the time. So uh, that was my other big thing. And uh, that was very fun. And, uh, you know, that gave me plenty to talk about with a lot of people, a lot of things like that. So it was, it was very interesting. You know, I feel I left New York in 2003 and I do remember, I was always interested in bars. I love trying the new bars. (laughs) I love, you know, being a layman, I guess. I was never a bartender. I never worked in the bar business. But I did like to hang out at some. And I do remember it little inklings of, you know, talking about all of a sudden you go to a place for martinis, say Temple right. Bar. Or I remember a friend of mine got married at Dale DeGroff's bar. At the Rainbow Room. Sorry, the Rainbow Room. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. He got married at the Rainbow Room and sitting at the bar and having drinks there. And I was lucky enough to go to Milk and Honey and Angel Share. Oh, and excellent. those kind of excellent. things. Yeah. So I had that experience and I feel that I left December t- 2003 and all of a sudden that's when it kind of started to explode with the Atlantic exactly. and all of that. I kind of missed that there, but I did move over to London where it was sort of happening oh, at it the was, same time. It was, it was big. It was, I was drinking in London by then, you know. And I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had known all of you then <laughs> in New York because it would have been great to drink. With it would have been you. great. Exactly. Well, yeah. 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 No, you would have been yeah. very welcome. You know, uh, it, I feel like like I said, I, it was a friendly crew. <laughs> uh, it was. And that's when tales kind of started to, yep. all these yep. things started to germinate and, and make it, you know, the great culture I mean, that it is now. It had been, it had been going already in New York for quite some time. I don't know if you remember Grange Hall. That had, a, of course, they, of course. They had a great bar, you know, with yeah. with great bartenders who knew the cocktails and 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 made them with with care and precision and brio. You know, a little bit of of, of just flair, not like flair bartending flair, but flair. Right. And, and that place was fantastic. And there were there were already a few places, and but yeah, and but Lansky too, Lounge. Yep. I but remember really, that. Really, it was, it was, you're right. It was 2003, 2004 that, that put things into overdrive. Mm-hmm. Well, we could talk here all day about the different cocktails, uh, yeah, cocktail yeah, yeah. bars in New York. But now, so you're, you're sitting there, you're writing, you're writing for Esquire, you're, mm-hmm. you're doing your thing. When, now I have, by the way, it's all. I see a stack here. of familiar books. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> when did you think, okay, it's time that the world hears about famous bartenders, historical famous bartenders like Jerry Thomas. And you, when did hmm. you, how did you well, start to even it, conceive and vibe? It, it started, you know, with my Esquire gig where I was interested in history. And so I kind of turned the little essays on the, the weekly cocktail. There was always a historical bent. If I could find the history of a drink, I would talk about that. And it was often not the one that you heard, you know. So I was, I, I knew it was rich uh, territory, but things really started one day in a bar in Brooklyn, a new bar at the time. I think it was called Toast. It was a bar and restaurant that specialized in toast. I'm not kidding. Hey, and, it's New York. Uh, it was New York. And yeah. I was at a, bir- a birthday gathering for uh, my friend, Andrea Strong, who I'd been on a press trip with. And I got invited and I start talking to these people. 
And uh, it turns out they are from Slow Food, the organization, or members of Slow Food. And I said, well, you know, the cocktail originally was a, that was a slow food art. Everything was handmade, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you take a person like Jerry Thomas, the guy who wrote the first cocktail book, I was, uh, you know, and I was off talking about this and how he was really a slow food artist and how wonderful it would be to do a tribute to him. And uh, the people, Alan Katz, who now owns New York Distilling Company, Sean Kelly, who was a big wig at Pernod Ricard and now at Cocktail Kingdom, and Anna Jovancicovic, who's a drinks industry PR, you know, powerhouse. At the But at the time, they were, you know, fairly young in their careers. And I'm talking with them and they say, well, yeah, let's do it. And they were very organized, so we did it. And as part of that, I had to research a, a little booklet to put out that Ted Hay, Dr. Cocktail, and I put together comm- commemorating this event that we did for Jerry Thomas. And uh, as part of the booklet, I wrote a, a little bio of him, a one-page bio. But I did you know, a ridiculous amount of research for it. And that convinced me that I could actually do a book based on him. And originally, I, you know, I come from classical scholarship. I was going to do a commentary on his book. So it would just be like, here's his book. And then I'd have notes at the bottom of every page, but nobody would buy that. So uh, it, it sort of uh, changed. It's still a commentary on his book, but it got uh, bigger and more idiosyncratic and less academic. But um, that, that became imbibe eventually. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first started my podcast over four years ago, and I have... I'll give him a shout out, Tom Soden, who owns Nine Lives here, who was my spiritual guru, as I called him. And I said, look, do I have to, to do this well? Do I have to be a bartender? He said, no, 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 right. no. You don't have to do that. What you have to do is you have to read three books. Get these <laughs> books and read them. Okay. Okay. One was Art of the Cocktail, Dale DeGroff. Mm-hmm. One was Joy of Mixology, okay, Gary Regan. And one was Imbibe. And so I ran out and bought those. I don't know if I still know enough, but I, you know, well, I started the podcast. It anyway. seems like you're doing but, pretty well. So. so did you expect it to, you know, get the kind of attention that it did and garner the press that it did and win a James Beard Award and all of that? Uh, I guess yes and no is, is, is the weaselly answer because I knew that there was a, a place for it, but... I was sort of demoralized because I had a hell of a time selling the book. Uh, Craft of the Cocktail and Joy of Mixology had already come out, you know. I didn't want to do another book like that. They had already covered all that. I wanted to do like the cocktail book for the people who already had those books and wanted to go further back into the foundations of the craft. And uh, I thought, hey, you know, everybody will buy this. And then I thought nobody's going to buy this. And then it came out and some people bought it. So it kind of went in between, but it but it, it got a lot of attention. And that was a surprise. The James Beard Award was a surprise and, and a, a very pleasant one. You know, no cocktail book had ever won that, that award. So I was happy just to be nominated. I was stunned to actually win it. But it showed the sort of the pent-up demand for serious cocktail books, you know, for, for books that brought more to the plate that weren't aimed just at the beginner. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then we've seen a number of books afterwards that have, have followed in that on that path. So, but yeah, it was absolutely. actually on my shelf. Yeah. It's nestled well. It's nestled in between your next book, Punch, which we're going to talk about in a second, and my own copy of 
Um, oh, there you go. How to Mix Drinks, which yep. is a 1927 copy because I used to trawl, and I'm sure I bumped into you, it, The Strand. Oh, of course. Four cocktail yeah. books. So mm-hmm. uh, this was before I was even doing this when I in New York, and they were like a dollar each. They were the so way. cheap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have quite a nice collection here. But now p- Punch. So f- followed up to that, you win this award. It's fabulous. Were you thinking, great, I can just go back to my day job. I'm not going to write any more books. Or, oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, there's not money like that in writing cocktail books, I'll tell you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's finally earned out and, you know, I finally get royalties for it, but it took a while. Punch was supposed to be easy because I <laughs> That means it, it wasn't. That was not. I turned it in vibe <laughs> at ridiculously over length because- it had a huge section on punches because Jerry Thomas's original book did. And my editor saw the length of the manuscript and she, she said, no, you know, we're not publishing this. This is way over contract length. This is not possible. You're going to have to cut a lot. And I looked at it and I, and I realized the easiest way to cut it was to get rid of the punch section, which made sense and brought imbibe into focus because the punch section, as I believed, was really not Jerry Thomas's anyway. That was mostly from his his uh, publishers, because all the all the recipes were compiled from other books, you ah. know. And then the 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 short drinks were you couldn't find those anywhere, but the others I was able to track down most of them elsewhere. And so I realized, okay, you know, that was probably their original book had a lot of punches, and then they hired a bartender. And I, I knew this because uh, Phil Green, who now writes wonderful cocktail history books. His brother is a uh, copyright lawyer and found the original copyright for me that the publisher filed and Jerry Thomas's name was nowhere on it. Oh, how interesting. That Dick and Fitzgerald filed and and they filed it two years before, uh, three years before the book came out. So clearly they had one book and then they didn't like it. They got a bartender and did another book. So I was going back to their idea and let's, all right, let's do a separate book on punches. And I'll just take all the punches I cut and write an introduction and it'll be done. But then it turns out I le- I, I did more research and I learned a ton more and more sources were available every year. And so I had to do more research. And it turns out that it took a long time to write that book. And it was actually quite difficult, but just because I had to learn all kinds of things that I didn't know. And, but you know, it came out far less successful than Imbibe, unfortunately. But, but you know, still it's out there and it has its fans. It's my favorite one of, of my drinks books, personally, because I think it came out the best. I think I have a penchant for Esqu- the Esquire drinks. Well, uh, that's a fun one. That, that's Only because just, I love the rules. The rules are fun. The captions, uh-huh. they stuck me with stupid stock photographs, but I got to write the captions. So <laughs> I had a blast just... Basically screwing around with the photographs. Let me correct that. I love all of your books. Well, thank you. But that actually, I found a signed copy, so I feel yeah, excellent. But I do love the you know your 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 road doesn't need a drink. You know that that's one of you know Esquire definitely they they that they set a high standard in terms of just breezy writing. You know, and and I really had to throw aside all my academic ways. And just uh, kind of find the writer inside. I know. You know, it's it's funny that you say that you didn't think you were a good writer before because your writing it's your writing style so wonderful. And I'm not just saying that because you're right here, but it's just so easy to read that it just seems inherent that you would always have been. Oh, that took a lot of uh, training from uh, editors. (laughs) 
not not in academia. I, I I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful editor at the Village Voice, Chuck Eddy, who was just great, you know, and is a great rock critic and and just a really good line editor. And then at the New York Times, I had Fletcher Roberts, a great editor. I had Tara Thomas at Wine and Spirits magazine, who I started writing for early on. And I had a number, Brendan Vaughn, Ross McCammon at Esquire, David Granger, the editor-in-chief. You know, these were all people who who just really, really got me to focus on this. Now, you know, I have Noah Rothbaum the same, who who, who don't indulge my worst tendencies, but, you know, got me to write stuff that people would actually want to read. It is amazing. I remember the first time I wrote something for for a newspaper. It was the first thing I've ever written for a newspaper. It was a big newspaper. I'm so excited. I sent it in and he said, no. Yeah. He said, this <laughs> is now he's like, this is more question time. We need the one show. Question time is like the most boring right. political show. We right. need the one show is like, you know, Kathy Lee Gifford, all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And he actually rewrote my first three paragraphs of how it should be. And literally from that moment, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, no, we're getting someone right, else. Right, right, right. Knowing that I was starting out, he was so good about that. So I, I understand an editor really, you know, trying to get the best yeah, out of you. I, I needed a lot of that kind of editing early on. And, and you know, eventually I internalized it. And uh, but uh, and you're here now. <laughs> now. So are you thinking of writing another book? Or well, I'm, I'm almost one? done with another book right now that I'm the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, which is a massive, massive oh, huge, job. I'm sure. Yeah, and I've been working on that for about eight years, you know, on and off. And we're in the final stages of it right now. God help me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a brutal job, but it's, you know, it's fascinating. I've learned so much while writing this and expanded my knowledge in a lot of different ways. It's been well, a real eye-opener. In the eight years that you've been doing this, have you had to add... A whole lot more, like every year, add something new to it. Uh, every year, uh, I've added research for sure. Uh-huh. You know, so more and more sources become available, and everything changes. I, it's taken so long because we're trying to throw out the standard stories and, and find, you know, go. We're trying to go back to primary sources rather than uh, things that have been repeated a million times in in a crappy game of telephone from from not very reliable sources of 50 years ago, we're trying to actually find original fresh information where possible on this stuff. And that's just, that takes a long time. I'm it's sure it does. Work. Now, you know, everything changes, as you said. I was just listening to uh, your podcast again, Life Behind Bars. Uh-huh. And I was, I just, I was looking through, I was like, I have listened to all of them, but I was thought, oh, you know, I'm meeting David, I have to refresh. <laughs> I have to refresh what I remember. And I went back to the one that you did for December 2019 on what okay. the year ahead would be. Oh, boy, were we wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that, yeah. why in, in 2017, you decided mm-hmm. to start Life Behind Bars? And uh, where, where did that, where did the podcast emerge from? Oh, it came from Noah, from my, you know, my, my partner in, in crime there. It was his idea. I'm not, I'm not uh, a podcast. Uh, listener, sorry, I don't even listen to mine. I don't and, take it personally. It's and uh, so it was a little strange for me, but it turns out to be a lot of fun, and I really enjoy doing it. You know, Noah and I get to talk, and then we get guests on and get to talk to them, and it's been fun 
pleasant thing to do that has you know brought new readers in, and so I'm very happy to do it. But I was I was skeptical at first. Who's like who's going to listen to the two of us just talking? About- you know, I I feel the same way. It's like number one, I don't really, I don't not really, I don't come from this drinking background. Right, I just, right. I love bartenders and I was on a press trip because I used to write about luxury travel. I still do sometimes. And, uh, you know, they feed you so much. And one day I was like, you know, I'm in Italy. <laughs> I just can't eat so much. Right. And we went, to, we went to a lemon theme restaurant and I ordered a limoncello because they made it there. And I thought, you know what? I prefer this drinking thing way more than the eating thing right now. I went back, <laughs> talked, to, yeah, yeah. Talked, talked to the bartender, loved his story and thought, gosh, and this was 2016. I wonder if there are any podcasts that have this. I didn't. There were, of course, there were some. A lot were B two B, business to business. Right, you know, right. The mixology. No, there, there are very few kind of consumer ones. Yeah, uh, and even mine. I'm not even sure is that consumer, but I'm trying. You know, hoping it 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 is that people will want to listen to all of your stories. I certainly do, and that yeah, there there. I thought, who's really going to listen to me? And then it seems that people do. So people do. Maybe I know. they have nothing to do, but they want to listen. And I, you know, I have well, the cocktails. And of course, I have people like you on my show. So of course, they want to listen. Yeah, I mean, but it, it it turns out it's it's fun, and people, you know, spend a lot of time in cars. There's a lot of places and, and times when it's nice to have some company, and so and we I, just try to be companionable. I think, given what this year has become that yours plays such a vital role in helping the people that we love, you know, get heard, you know, the bartenders, the people who are really suffering, you know, your, your series with bullet. It's these, what you're saying is really important. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is really important. You're helping people and this is their voice and they don't get to have their voices heard so much right now as their bars are closing. I mean, that we, we definitely took seriously, you know, and and we're very happy to have some really wonderful people on and give them, you know, at least a, a chance to talk about this and bring it before the public, some of the challenges that they're dealing with. I mean, who knows where things are going to go? It's it's not going to be pretty, but but hopefully we'll continue to do that, you know, because it's like a comet hit the bar industry, you know, and we're just picking up the pieces right now. But bartenders are resilient above all. So there's no, that. absolutely. And uh, I'm hoping, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be invited to the last night of Milk and Honey here. Oh, my God. I wish I had been there. Which, you know, I, they're like, what do you want to drink? And I said, well, there are only two things I can drink here. The London Calling and the Penicillin. Because <laughs> if you can't yeah. have those here, then, you, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to have them anyplace else. I want to have them here. And, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And I'm just hoping, I I believe, I think Ivy Mick said it on your show and I I don't know her, but she said that, and she hopes, and I really believe this will happen, that if we get something that can cure this, that these twenties will be just like the 1920s. I believe everyone is going to travel (laughs) and go crazy. They are just going crazy. Oh, now, now we know what we've lost, you know, it's, uh, we don't take it for granted anymore. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be nuts. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I spent so much time traveling around America on like stupid sort of domestic business travel, right? And uh, that I don't miss, but the rest of tra- that, uh, that it, it's funny. It's like, I've, I've learned that, okay, maybe when this is over, I'll do less of that. 
and I'll save the travel for places I really want to go, you know, and, and not do this sort of wake up at 6 a.m. and get on a plane and fly in and do my event and then, you know, have a have a quick dinner and go to bed and get up at the, at 6 a.m. the next day and, and fly out. I'll try to really appreciate the places I'm at because I wasn't doing that. And now, you know, the idea of being in Chicago and not spending an extra day, like going to bookstores and walking along mm. the lake and getting tacos out in the Western part of town where it's all Mexican. I mean, that, that would just be awful to me. You know, it's like... And no, I agree. It also has made me appreciate the bars that I have near me. And one a wonderful bar has just opened down the street. Oh, that's fantastic. It is fantastic. But again, will we have a shutdown like Manchester where everything is closed and they have to disappear and start anew? So it has made me value the bars that are really close to me because mm-hmm. I want them to stay open because they have been so good to me during this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we need all of, we need all of our neighborhood institutions, you know, particularly the ones that have been really like part of the neighborhood. That's the other, that's another thing I've learned is that that's really, those are the bars that I think are the most valued. Those are the ones that are going to come back. I think are the ones that that are woven into the fabric of their neighborhoods, not the ones that are, you know, a couple of investors pop, you know, sponsored another branch of a successful bar. And, and, you know, nobody's really like invested and it was just there to get people on Saturday night. But the places that are just, you know, the owner lives around the corner type places, those, those I'm really, really protective of. I totally agree. And actually what made me laugh was one of your, your, I guess your headlines of something that you wrote, which was forget sourdough starter. You should pre-batch cocktails. (laughs) That was one of my favorite ones of, of... Um, what the hell, right? Every time I interviewed someone, they would give me like the guys from the Savoy and some from the Conant mm-hmm. who I already knew. Every recipe they would give me was for a, a batch cocktail. Like, okay. okay if, you yeah. want your, if you want your Savoy martinis, this is how you make them in bulk. And put it in the <laughs> freezer and don't take it out. And, yep, so, and yep. also, uh, Giorgio at the call nut was like, okay, this is how you make four different kinds of Negronis. You need four big bottles. You know, and, you know, I just, I love that. And I thought, this is, yes. Yes, yeah. you're getting it, you know. You'll have a good that's drink. What, uh, that's what you need now, you know. Yeah, and I think the, the article I did was, uh, you know, fill up these three bottles with this mix and then you can turn this mix into each one of these mixes into three or four different drinks and uh, you know suddenly you've got like a, a drink program for when you can't make it to the local bar for takeout drinks or whatever but yeah, you know these recipes kind of, we, are from the best they're from yeah. you they're from the savoy yeah you couldn't get better than that well you, <laughs> i wish i had drinks from the savoy right now i'll tell you that much and the I Connaught, guess, I, I wish I had one of Ago's martinis. Oh my God, that would be phenomenal. You know, for a while there in, I think it was 2018, it seemed like every time I went to an airport, I ran into Ago. <laughs> it was like in the most unlikely places, you know, Los Angeles. Wait a minute, what are you doing here? You know, uh, be in, in London, in Rome, wherever, you know, suddenly there's, there, there's, 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 there's Ago Perona. It was, uh, that was amazing. That was extremely pleasant. I mean, what a, what a sweet guy and, and, he and, is. and a good guy he is. Absolutely. And the next time you're in London, Ago's Martini's on me. Okay? It's a deal. Very it's a deal. happily. Now, 
One last thing. When is your book coming out? The Oxford edition? Well, we're hoping for next fall. So right. we're, you know, we're piling on the steam or, you know, piling on the coal right now and building up the steam and trying to get this thing done. But, oh, Lord, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a big pile of work. Well, I so look forward to that. More than that, I look forward to either having a drink with you in New York or a drink here in London. Either way, I'll, I'll be in London for sure. Eh? Thank you. Thank you. And it is such a joy for me to have you on. You uh, as Not only are you the Dean of Cocktails, as I said, you are a wonderful, prolific, and fabulous writer. And it was a joy, a joy. Well, God, bless you. You God bless you. God bless you. Right? You too. You know, I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave you blushing then. You know I couldn't leave David without asking for his top tips for the home bartender and where he would have a drink right now if he could choose anywhere in the world. Well, learn two or three cocktails and learn to make them without a recipe. So you can just throw them together like you were, you know, boiling an egg. I mean, that's really the best thing you can do. You don't need to know 80 cocktails. You don't need to know the most abstruse and weird and cutting edge cocktails. If you can make an old fashioned, just like as easy as rolling out of bed and, you know, a martini and a daiquiri, you will be so popular with your friends and you will always be happy because you'll always have a good drink at your fingertips. Fabulous. And if you could drink anywhere right now, where would that be? I think if I could be anywhere right now, it would be at, uh, Bar Camperino in uh, in Milano, right across from the Duomo there, which is just the classic Italian aperitivo bar. And I just miss that so much. I miss that whole culture. I miss being in Italy. And that would just really amuse the hell out of me. How can I thank David enough for being on the show? It is such a privilege to welcome him to the Lush Life family. So what could be his pick for our cocktail of the week? It's one of the oldies, but has since been improved. David's choice for our Cocktail of the Week is the Improved Holland Gin Cocktail. If you want to know its history, well, you'll just have to buy his book Imbibe. Let's just say it started life as an old-fashioned. Add the following ingredients to a mixing glass. Two ounces of Oud Geneva or another rich Geneva. One bar spoon of rich simple syrup, which is two to one Demerara sugar to water. One scant bar spoon of orange curacao. Two to three dashes of aromatic bitters. And one dash of absinthe. Add cracked ice and stir. Then strain it into a chilled cocktail glass and twist a swatch of thin-cut lemon peel over the top. You'll find this recipe, plus more gin recipes and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. They say you should never meet your heroes. Well, they are wrong. Meeting David Wandrich was such a delight, and I was so touched that he took the time to be on Lush Life. I only wish I had known him when I was living in New York. He would have been a fabulous drinking companion. I can't wait to have that first cocktail with him anywhere, anytime. 
If you live for Lush Life, make sure you're giving back to the bars you love by donating or taking part in cocktail delivery where you live. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly and wash your hands and wear a mask. Next week, we are taking a short break for Thanksgiving, so see you in a few weeks. Until that time, bottoms up. <laughs>